The word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to BromleyTownChurch.com. Today I have the privilege of just having one little message between what we just did with the patriarchs and as we go into the will of God. And this is, this is a part of the Bible that a lot of people avoid. They don't even know this bit of Jewish history, but it is so rich with what God does and how he operates that it is a shame that we as believers ignore it because the scriptures say there is a manifold wisdom of God. He is so vast, so wonderful. Understanding him will take forever. But on this earth, we have the scriptures to get to know this part of him. And throughout this middle section of the scriptures, if you will, you get to know a God who defines himself as a God of love, who wants to redeem and restore, and wants to hold back from sending calamity. In fact, the second great breakthrough I see in the scriptures is when God comes in Exodus 34, and God says to Moses, he says, Moses says, who should I say you are? And God begins to speak about himself. And when you read that section of scripture, take it home today. This is God Almighty taking this moment in time to cut through all the confusion that might exist out there and say, this is who I am. This is who I am. I'm abounding in love, slow to anger. And, but I will punish sin. He says he will punish sin. But his blessings go to a thousand generations. But the curse will go to three and four. So you see this God who speaks about who he is and what he does. And we see it even develop further in what he does with the Jewish people. We see this God come forth in amazing ways. Now, I've got page two out first. That's not helping me. In the U.S., and everyone knows that 9-11 happened. At that moment, I was teaching class, and the technology teacher came and knocked on my door and said, did you hear what happened? I'm teaching. He says, a plane flew into one of the towers. I said, oh, that's terrible. Oh, no. Didn't know the size of the plane. Didn't know, the, oh, this terrible accident. And then a little while later, he comes, a second plane has come. And in then the realization dawned, oh, this was on purpose. This was done intentionally. This isn't just an accident. And then it sinks in. Oh, my. What does the future hold? This changes everything. This shifts everything. And then there's, then there's reports... They hit the Pentagon. Oh, they hit the White House. Oh, we had tons of, of like stories and oh, the whole world was blowing up for a moment, you know? But we had a, what was true? We didn't even know. Confusion was settled upon us. And so at lunchtime, a bunch of us teachers who thankfully many of us were Christians, we just cried out to God. We didn't know where else to turn because the information was too much for us to handle. The future had become uncertain. Every single one of us have faced or will face moments 
when the future that you thought or had a general idea completely changes and you're cut to the core like, what does this mean? Does this mean I'm going to sink down to the absolute low? To the worst place I could imagine? What does this mean? This happened in Jewish history where the very worst possible thing they imagined could happen. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians marched on Jerusalem, demanded the release of all the people, and demanded that they could come into the city and take over, and they refused. There was a prophet inside that said, hey, 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 this is a good deal for us. We're the ones who rejected God and turned our backs on him, and he is bringing this destruction, as has been told to you by many prophets. And this one Jeremiah who had risen up was thrown into a cistern. In 586, exactly what he said took place, though. Exactly what he said took place. The whole city was razed to the ground, destroyed and burned. And to us, this is just an event. It's not near to our hearts like 9-11. We don't have the picture and the culture and the way people live. And we don't, we don't have pictures of people who died. We don't have that. We do have a picture, uh, an illustration by an artist of what that may have looked like. Actually, this is the second destruction. That's a result that's still there from the second temple destroyed. But this is kind of just what they portrayed from the scriptural view. It was burned. Even in, um, I might not say this correctly, the news source Heretz, is that a Jewish newspaper? Some of you may have heard of it's, it's, it's a quality source. <laughs> um, those of you who like going online can check this out. In March, they discovered uh, 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 this Beulah, this seal from one of the kings during this time period in a burned lair in Jerusalem, right outside the south of the city in the old city of David. They found in the layers, right in the burned layer, something from that time period only confirming that this exactly happened as the scriptures declare it. But to understand the weight of the destruction of the temple, you have to understand a little bit of Jewish history. And we could never do justice in the time that we have today. But this was the temple that was built by Solomon. And when everything was made right, the presence of God Almighty came so powerfully in it that everybody ceased operating. The priests laid flat on their faces. They could do, do no more sacrifices because God was in the house. He consecrated this house as a place that he would dwell forever and ever. And he said to them, I will always have a, a, a king on this throne of Israel in the line of David if they obey my covenant. You have to imagine that every year, three times at least, whole families would pick up their stuff and march to Jerusalem. This was their way of life. This is the way they did things. For Christmas, you have special things you do that are beyond just the holidays. You have special things. You can imagine that, that men picked the hands of kids and they swung them as they're walking to Jerusalem. The kids probably loved jumping up on the wagons. They had all these memories of going to Jerusalem. It was the center of everything. This is where you meet with God. And now, in 586, all the memories are gone. All the family memories. God said this was his house. How could this be? What does this mean? This, the future is uncertain. Maybe some thought, maybe our God is not God. Maybe he's just a regional God, like just one local God. Maybe he's not God of all the earth. And confusion could settle on the hearts of people. Devastated. 
what Jeremiah said took place too. Zedekiah would see his son slaughtered, but he wouldn't see the land he's going to. And what happened when Nebuchadnezzar took over the city in 586? He took rebellious Zedekiah out front and in front of everyone, slaughtered every one of his sons before his own eyes and then gouged his eyes out. And so there your king is killed or is gouged out before you. All the princes are gone. How's David's line going to be, be fulfilled? Now, just a side note here. David was promised the kingdom forever if he obeyed the covenant. There were many kings in the line who broke the covenant seriously. And God kindly rose up a voice and said, repent, change your ways. God didn't instantly smush him. He could have. But his mercy was confused by the people. His lack of quick punishment because of the cry of the people to save Israel, he allowed certain men to stay. But that wrath was stored up to the day that God said, I can no longer use you as a people to do my purposes. I know this is somber. This is serious stuff. But in all this, you can see the hand of God. I want to turn your attention to Jeremiah 41, 4 through 8. After Nebuchadnezzar runs off, he's established Jedaliah as a governor. Zedekiah is off in, the other, in Babylon. And this is what it says in Jeremiah 41, verse 4. And this is a verse you'll never hear quoted again, but I'm going to give it to you. The day after Jedaliah's assassination, so the governor of the land is now assassinated by somebody who wants to further annihilate the Jews. Every hope they had after the destruction is now wiped out again. I mean, destruction after destruction. This is awful. The one governor who could bring back security and safety is now gone. The day after Gedaliah's assassination, before anyone knew about it, 80 men, catch this, 80 men who had shaved off their beards, torn their clothes and cut themselves, came from Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria, bringing grain offerings and incense with them to the house of the Lord. Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, went out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he went. Now Ishmael is the one who killed Gedaliah. When he met them, he said, Come to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. When they went into the city, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and the men who were with him slaughtered them, threw them into a cistern. But ten of them said to Ishmael, don't kill us. We have wheat and barley, olive oil and honey hidden in the field. So let them alone. He let them alone and did not kill them with the others. In a desperate cry to God, 80 men rise up. Their temples destroyed. Their governor's gone, and they come in this Hail Mary pass, if you will, or this, this last-ditch effort because they love the Lord. There's still righteousness in the land, and they come in this desperate moment to offer sacrifices on the rubble of Jerusalem. Smoke could still be smoldering up, but they come because they have to sacrifice the Lord. It's in them to give their hearts to the Lord, to worship Him, and 70 of them are slaughtered. The other... The real survivors, they survive the destruction of Jerusalem and they negotiate their way out of certain death. Ten are left. That's a remnant. Even the remnant, God hears. Even the small, still voice, God hears. 
even the cry of one child at night, God hears. And I'm going to tell you that what God does here is because he cares about us. He cares about the righteous. All this had to happen. If you look at Psalm 137, it further paints the heart cry of the Israelite people, how desperate they were, how miserable they were in in captivity. Psalm 137 says, by the rivers of Babylon, this is their captivity, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for a song. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Devastated. But God is not inactive. He has sent tons of prophets to warn this from happening and they refused to listen. And he said, finally, enough's enough. But even in the middle of it, he begins to plan for the redemption. Before they even get a chance to fully repent, God already has a plan for the redemption. Today, if you are living away from God, he's already planned for you to come to him. He already has a way for you to come through. He may be planning right now your next smile. He has got a plan. Look for a moment with me in the book of Ezekiel, who is another prophet at this time. And I just want to tell you what this means to my heart when I read it, because it completely changed something within me. I didn't like the book of Ezekiel. I avoided it, probably because of all these miserable things I've just talked about. You all love touching somebody else's pain and suffering, don't you? And just dwelling on it for a while. But God takes notice of things, and he cares for us. And at the end of Ezekiel, God begins to speak to Ezekiel. He says to him, Ezekiel, 14 years after the destruction, by the way, he says, Ezekiel, I have a plan. The temple is going to be rebuilt. And that sounds great, doesn't it? If you were in captivity, you lost everything, nothing's the same, you don't know if you're ever going back. God says he's going to build a temple. That would be nice, okay? But God does far better. I'm going to take you back to another devastation in the U.S., okay? We're on all devastation today. Back about 10 years ago, you all know that the housing crisis hit the world. It, it shook financial markets. Banks had to come bail things out. You know, many people in our community in Orlando lost their homes outright. They didn't know what to do. Their future was uncertain. All of a sudden, they almost lost everything. People had to move in with their parents after being years on their own. It was devastation. Terrible things. People didn't know how it was going to be solved. Um, And what I imagined at this time was if one of my friends who completely lost his house had kids, if somebody was to come to him and say, hey, John, I have a house for you. That would be like, yes, God. That'd be good. But what if somebody came to John and said, John, I have a house for you. 
It's got a curved sidewalk up the front. It's paved with stone. The front way is a double arched door and the stones are all yellow brick. The roof is made with a, our, our, um, architectural shingles so it's gonna last you a long time. In the kitchen we got stainless steel and we got marble countertops. We've got in the backyard a nice swimming pool that you can dive in and it's all laid with St. Augustine grass which here in England you'd never want St. Augustine grass. It's terrible, it's, it hurts your feet but in, in, in Florida it, it's the best thing we got. It's got St. Augustine grass, it's got bushes and trees and mango trees. If somebody was to come and say that to John it'd be far more than saying, I think I've got a house for you. It'd say, wow, there's a plan. He's got a real house. He'd begin to paint the picture of what this place would look like. And your hope from this devastation could arise. Maybe we can start again. Maybe there's a future. Maybe there's a hope. And this is exactly what God does in Ezekiel chapter 40. Listen to this. It will bore you if you read it. I'm telling you. It goes on for eight chapters about what the new temple is going to be like, how it's going to operate, what people are going to do, what type of furniture are going to be in it. It even says the palm trees are going to be on the walls. There's porticos. It says there's seven steps up here. There's other steps down here. There's arched ways here and there's other. It's like, why God? Why would you write this? Today, what does this mean to me? The exact measurements of this may have some significance to, me, to us today and to theologians who are thinking, but to the people of that day, the righteous in the land, those who are of, of the tribe of Zadok, who actually were righteous through it all, would say, oh, God has not forgotten me. Through real and utter destruction, God has a plan. And he raises up this hope before them so that they can survive through the worst history they've ever had. When we say that God's kindness leads us to repentance, the Old Testament begins to paint a picture of his kindness leading Israel back to himself. And you see it throughout the scriptures, throughout um, the writings of Nehemiah and Ezra, that God brings all the people back and he restores the temple. And the day the temple's restored, there's an unusual response. They build the foundation and some people shout for joy because the hope has come and others shout because it's only the, shout in tears because it's only the foundation. But the temple is rising up. And so today, what I simply say to you is that we have a God whose character is established in the scriptures. He is a God who through utter devastation and utter loss of the future can rise us back up, not just based on one Bible verse, but on who he is throughout the whole weight of the scripture. We don't want to ignore the word of God, even if it's a part that may seem boring to us, like chapter 40, chapter 40 through 48. It just goes on and on, and it might not seem to be meaningful but it has deep riches to us as it speaks of who God is. I'm going to end here on Ezekiel 43. All these chapters come from a revelation that Ezekiel had while he's in captivity in Babylon. 
wondering what's going to happen. And in 43, he says something amazing. He's not just going to build a temple. He's not just going to give a whole picture of the whole thing. He underscores Jesus' last words on earth. He underscores the call of God through all the generations. Because even in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is before, all, uh, before the destruction. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 3.19, he's, or in, in the chapter 3, he's saying, oh, adulterous people, you're going to be punished if you don't turn your way. And it's really hard stuff. But then in Jeremiah 3.19, he says, oh, that you would call me Father. Let me read exactly that. I'll go back to Ezekiel in a minute. I'm going to be reading from the ESV version, so it may be a little different what's up on the screen. But this is Jeremiah 3.19. I said, this is God the Father talking to Jeremiah, warning them to turn, warning them away from what's coming, warning them from the destruction of 586. And he says, I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all the nations. And I thought, and I thought, you would call me my father and would not turn away from following me. Surely, as a treacherous Life, wife leaves her husband. You have been treacherous, O house of Israel. The heart of God, even the call of God to be our Father, is here in the Old Testament. The longing of God beyond all the things we can see and all the confusion that can happen in our life and all the things that rise up against us and try to steal our hope, steal our vision of the future, steal what we think we have. There is hope that there is a God who wants you to call him Father, wants you to turn to him. He does not change like shifting shadows. He's not changing. And we see this in Ezekiel 43. Once again, the weight of this might not hit you completely until you read the fullness of what's going on. But let me read this. This is Ezekiel before God being spoken directly about all these things, about the temple and all this. In 43, it says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And the gate in Jerusalem facing east is the gate that only the kings could go into. That portico is only for the kings. All the other entrances were for the people. And that's the way it had been. And today, the Jewish people believe the Messiah is going to be coming through the East Gate. So the East Gate is very, very special. In fact, the Muslims have put a graves guard outside the East Gate so that it's defiled, so that the Messiah could never come. Isn't that fascinating? This is all real history. But it says in verse 2, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the East. This is a verse we could quickly read past and think, okay. But to the Jewish person, this means far more. Because if you go back to uh, um, Ezekiel chapter 8, you'll see that he had another vision by the Jabbar Canal, and Ezekiel goes into a trance, and God shows him that his glory is leaving the temple before, it, before it's destroyed. And it's powerful. 
because he takes Ezekiel in this dream. He says, Ezekiel, look what they're doing next to the temple. They're offering incense to reptile gods next to my temple. Can I ignore this? Look what they're doing here. They've brought in false idols into my house. Can I ignore this, Ezekiel? He's trying to give understanding to his people. He's trying to speak, this can't be tolerated, but look at this. It's breaking my heart. I would long that they would turn and call me father, but look, can I ignore this? He says, look at the priest. They're kissing. The back of their hand is almost like a good luck sign to the, the sun god. In my house. In my house. I'm the one who rescued them. I'm the one who loved them. I'm the one who carried them through the desert like, like a mother carries its young. And here, God says he's not just giving them a temple, but he says, the glory of God. He saw it in the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. This deep, rich, loud coming of the Lord. And the earth shone with its glory, with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision I had seen by the Jabbar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. What is he saying? Even after this utter rejection of God that brought this terrible destruction and this complete confusion over the people of Israel, God is not just going to come back with a little prize and give you a building. He's not just going to come and give you a little bit of encouragement. He's going to come and give you himself. He's come to be with you. He does not want to stay distant. He wants to bring you in. So whatever you have done, whatever has happened in your life, he wants to meet you. And he is willing to clean you and indwell you with his Holy Spirit and raise you up so that you have a future and a hope a future and a hope. When future's been stolen or you've been diminished because of the things you've done or the things that have been done to you, you can rise up hope, not just from one scripture verse, but from the very actions and history of our God. This is who he is. This isn't a book just about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not just about Ezekiel. It's about who he is. It's how he operates. It's how he wants to meet you and call you son, daughter. Come to me. Avoid the destruction. Avoid the destruction. Avoid the harm to your soul. Avoid the lostness. Avoid the wandering. I have a purpose for you. This is the love of God. This is what defines the songs we sing. This defines what it says when God so loved the world. What does love mean? He's going all the way for you. Romans 8.32 says, and I'm going to paraphrase it because it, it says, God Almighty, who has given you his son, is he now going to withhold from you? Is it like he saved you and said, okay, now you're on your own? Do it yourself? No, that's a complete lie from hell that says 
I can handle this on my own. God never wants you to say that. I can handle it with him. And he promises to be with us. He promises to dwell us, indwell us, and be with us day after day. He says that he is a father to us. Today could be the very day that you rise up your eyes and see that there is a God who really does want you, really does love you, even if things have been done wrong. This is solid. This is history. This is rooted even in the buildings of Jerusalem where there's uh, burned layers and there's Beulah from the, the, the governor of the land and the kings of that time period. It happened. The pain happens. But he has a future and a hope for you. And that's what Jeremiah even said to the people of Israel as they're in captivity. He said, God has a future and a hope for you. Regardless of where you're at, regardless of the level of de devastation, he wants to give you a future and a hope. I, I, I wish I could impart to you the depth of this. I really do. I wish I could just kind of reach inside your heart and say, this is real. He's done it through history. We have a lot of good songs. We have a lot of good Bible verses. We have a lot of nice things we say. And we have a lot of positive thoughts. But those positive thoughts are anchored in history, in the God who's demonstrated who he is. So when we cast our eyes upon the Lord or we hear a verse that says, put your eyes upon God, this is that God who restores, who wants to raise up and bring hope. You even heard Sarah's testimony about the devastation that came in her home this past week. And she's beginning to place her eyes that God will come through. And he will. Thank you for listening to this message from Bromley Town Church. You are always welcome to visit us on a Sunday morning or join us again for more messages here online. You can also stay connected with us at www.bromleytownchurch.com.